you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. As we enter the Christmas season where we focus on the birth of Jesus, we have an opportunity to think about some pretty foundational questions. For example, we can ask, why is Jesus so important? After all, despite what some believer teach, Christianity has never been a mere charity organization. Yes, real Christianity is rooted in the person who taught the story of the Good Samaritan, a person who went beyond all uh, social norms and standards to give aid and comfort to a man who, in any other situation, would have hated and reviled him. But more than just doing good works, there is a core system of beliefs in Christianity about who God is and about how people can and should relate to him. Those beliefs come from a book of writings which claim to be the product of human hands and so far as they were moved by God so that what is written is completely and exclusively God's word in the fullness of its truth. Furthermore, Christianity is not about getting and having friends and simply doing things together. Christianity is not a social club. Yet at the same time, Christianity does stand with a very specific mission to try and get other people to come and to fellowship with us and to be Christians like us. So how did all of this come to be? Where did that core set of beliefs and practices that make up Christianity come from? Why is Christianity still the number one religion in the world even after 2,000 years? The answer to all those questions is Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the answer. In the end, what we believe, how we live, and why we do what we do is all about Jesus Christ. But more than just Christianity, the Bible teaches that everything is about Jesus. He is the one who created all things as we just sung uh, sung about. He is the one who stands at the very center of God's plan to save humanity from his sin. He stands as the one who deserves to be the focus of all our worship. He is the one who is the Lord of all things with authority over all things. It's all about Jesus. And that's what we want to see over the next eight weeks on these Sunday mornings. We could do this a couple of different ways, but uh, what, we, what I decided to do, and the elders said, yeah, that looks like, sounds like a good idea to us too, is why not go to Jesus himself and see what he said about himself, right? I mean, after all, you have people today who want to argue that the Jesus of history is not the Christ of faith. That is to say that, that uh, what Paul writes in his letters and what Christians have said for thousands of years, that's not what Jesus claimed about himself. Well, the reality is when you go to the words of Jesus and you actually read what Jesus said about himself, you cannot help but come away and say, yeah, what his followers said is exactly what Jesus said about himself. And so over the next eight weeks, we want to go to the gospel of John and look to what Jesus taught about himself. You may or may not know that while Jesus was uh, incarnate, while he was here on this earth, John was in fact his very best friend. He is the beloved disciple. He is the one uh, that Jesus was the closest to. And John also in his gospel records for us unique material that's not found in any of the other gospels. Specifically, one of the things that is uh, a real treasure and treat as we read John's gospel is the recording of Jesus' famous I am statements. 
These are statements that Jesus makes about himself and what he came to do. So Jesus, we will see in, in, in weeks to come, he would say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in these statements alone, frankly, we can see that it's all about Jesus. That from beginning to end, not just for our lives and Christianity, but all things have their significance and focus in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look to John chapter 8, we want to see what is in many ways the climax of these statements, or perhaps, as I want to present this morning, the foundation of these I am statements. Here, Jesus establishes his superiority over every other religious leader, every other godly person throughout history, every other so-called or real savior. Here, Jesus shows that he himself is the superior savior, and more than that, he offers superior life to all who would follow him and trust in him. So follow along with me. John chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as in the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. Well, it's an amazing passage. In fact, it's even more amazing than I first realized until I actually began to study it this week more closely for today's message. You see, what we, what we just read, just before this in verse 30, we have uh, the end of Jesus giving some teaching and John making the comments. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. And ordinarily, that would be a good thing. You would be encouraged and say, people believed in Jesus, that's good. But then you read the very next verse. Verse 31 that we looked at. So Jesus said to them who had believed. And then we have our text. And what is amazing, what is shocking is that here are people who are ready to believe in Jesus. Who even profess some kind of faith in him. Some kind of belief in him. But then they turned against him. Even to pick up stones and kill him. At the end of our text. When he began to teach the truth, that's when they turned against him. He taught things they did not want to hear. So what was Jesus teaching that was so upsetting to them? That's what we want to see this morning. And we want to unpack what Jesus is teaching here. And in doing so, we want to lay a foundation for the next several weeks as we explore who Jesus is and why it's true that everything is ultimately about him. And I need to give a caveat. As I was, as I was going through this this week, I was, I was thinking, because uh, I, I was you know, going back and forth through John's Gospel, and I was thinking, uh, man, uh, I would just like to just break out and just start teaching all through John's Gospel. But we're in the middle of this other bigger series we're already taking a break from. It. I can't do that. And I was telling Melinda this morning, I said, man, I said, look at back over this again. I said, there's at least three or four sermons in this thing I'm trying to do all this morning. So, uh, and even as I was writing, I'm realizing, no, I can't talk about that. Can't talk about that. Can't talk about, oh, I should, no, can't talk about that. So just understand, there's going to be things in this text, and you're going to be left saying, well, what was that about? Well, why did they say that? What are they doing? Just send me a Facebook message. Email me. And I'll, call me up. Do so, I'll be glad to talk. But, but we, we want to get to the core here. We want to see what in the world does it mean for Jesus to say, I am. That's, that's what we're getting at this morning. That's where we're driving to. And so in order to do that, we want to see three things, really. Three things. Some, we want to see what Jesus offers. We want to see who Jesus is so that he can make that offer. And we want to see the response that should be in our lives this morning. First, Jesus offers superior life. Jesus offers superior life. Throughout this passage, we see Jesus teaching about life that stands in contrast to the kind of life these people had. He, he's offering them superior life and abundant life from God himself. You know, the people are too stuck in what they think superior life is. They're too stuck in, in the traditions that have built up around God's teaching, their false beliefs to see the life of joy that their Messiah, their God, is holding out to them. So what exactly does Jesus offer? First, he offers freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. These people have expressed, again, they've expressed belief in Jesus in some way. John says that, that they look like they, they believed in Jesus. And yet the very first thing he says is, the very first thing Jesus says to them is about what it actually means to believe in him. He says, you've said you believed. You look like you're wanting to be my disciples. Well, let me tell you, this is the kind of life my disciple is. This is, this is what my disciples look like. Jesus said to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
what should have been an instructive and encouraging word from the person that they were supposedly believing in became a word of contention uh, between these two parties. They get angry at Jesus' words because they get what he is saying. They understand Jesus is saying, you are enslaved and you need someone to set you free and I am the person to do it. The problem was in their minds they weren't enslaved. Their minds, they had no problem. They had absolute and total freedom because they were children of their father Abraham. They thought as descendants of Abraham, the one upon which God poured out his extraordinary favor and blessing and entered into covenant with, they thought they were okay. They thought they had the privilege of being right with God because their ancestor was right with God. And so you will find Jewish writings of the time saying that all the children of Abraham are kings. They are all subject to no man. And just because Abraham was their ancestor, it didn't make them free. Jesus goes on to explain, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now today there is this prevailing notion, this view, that you, and you hear it everywhere. And it says that, that mankind, humanity, people are basically good. Have you heard this before? I mean, uh, one of, one of my favorite comedies that I used to like to watch, especially when it was first run, was it was a show called Frasier. It was about a guy who was a psychologist, and, and, uh, and, and, and he himself needed a psychologist. He was completely nuts, and he had an even more nutso brother. And uh, it was just absolutely hilarious to see the two interact. But, but one time, he, he was really pressed uh, in a situation where uh, uh, bad things had been done to him. And, and his comment was, I still have a fundamental belief that people are essentially good. It was a fictional character, but he's expressing the view not only of his character that he's portraying, but the writers who are writing the character. What about real life? You turn on someone like Dr. Phil, and this is the same thing that he says. People are essentially good. And this is the view that, that popular society has, that, that, that people are essentially good. What's worse is sometimes you hear TV preachers, and they will say, people are basically good. But the Bible presents a far worse reality to humanity. The Bible says that humanity, people are not fundamentally good, they're fundamentally sinners and so enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to sin because we commit sin and in committing sin, it's not some external thing that's bearing down upon us. It wells up from within a sinful heart. So the Bible says people are not basically good. They're fundamentally sinful. And frankly, if we would just stop and think, if we, would, if we would turn off what the message of the world that we're hearing is and just look out and think about all that we see, this would become fairly obvious, I think. I mean, we begin with some pretty, some pretty easy scenes that would flash in front of our minds, the ovens of the German Holocaust that eliminated 6 million people, or worse, when Stalin wiped out 10 million of his own people. These un almost unimaginable. I mean, you just try and think about 10 million. That number hardly means anything to us. And yet, wiped out in a matter of years. And yet we have news stories here locally where a lady's boyfriend kills their infant child with scalding hot water. And you look at that and you say, how can this be the fruit of a being that is essentially good? It can't. You can't reconcile that because it's not something that happens every couple, every couple decades or every couple centuries. This is the pervasive living out of humanity steeped in evil and selfishness and pride and violence and sin. The world doesn't have it right. Jesus has it right. We are enslaved 
to sin and we need someone to free us. Humanity is not basically good. We are living in and loving sin whenever possible. We need someone to free us. We need a liberator. And this is the very thing Jesus offers. He says, in me, you will find someone who will give you freedom from your sins. You will find someone who will break the chains of bondage in your heart and free you from the penalty and the power of sin in your life. He not only offered to the Jews of his day, but he continues to offer it to all people today. Jesus not only offered freedom from sin, he also secondly offers eternal life. He offers eternal life. As we read the text, the, the, the Jewish people that are listening here are becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus, finding what he said completely unbelievable. It made them incredulous. And Jesus' response is to say, look, if you are really the children of Abraham that you are so proud to be, then you would know me. You would love me. You would embrace me. But, but, he says, you're not doing that. You think you're Abraham's children. And you are physically, genetically. If we did a DNA test, sure, you'd come up with Father Abraham as your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But spiritually, you are nothing like him. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a problem with me. Jesus said to them in verse 42, If God were your father, as he was the father of Abraham, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are your father you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, what does Jesus mean? The people thought that because Abraham believed God, and it was counted as God as his father, that so also they had God as their father. But Jesus says, no, the devil is your daddy. Now, what does he mean? How is Satan their father? I mean, they're human beings. They're not, they're not demonic people. Well, we've said before that in the Bible and in this culture of the day, fatherhood is often more about shared qualities than physical parentage. And so when Jesus is saying that these are children of the devil, he's saying, you're acting like the devil. You're not acting like God. If God was truly your father, if you were trusting in him and depending on him and finding spiritual life in him, then you would look like him. You would resemble God. You would act like God. But you don't. You're acting like the devil. Therefore, your father must be the devil. They are rejecting God's word. They are rejecting God's authority. They are disbelieving the promises of God. All of that causes them to lie and to hate and to even get violent. And Jesus says, that's not what, my, that's not what, that's not what God's people look like. It's not the kind of life that I offer to those that would follow me. They say, are we not right in saying you have a demon? Jesus says in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews thought they knew God so well. And Jesus' teaching was in such contradiction to what they thought. They said, oh, he's got to have a demon. I mean, I mean, this guy can't be from God. He can't even be a person. He's saying things so totally contrary to what we believe is true. He must have a demon spouting lies in him. And Jesus says, he got it all wrong. I don't have a demon. I'm not even seeking my own glory. Rather, I am seeking the glory of the Father. And in fact, he seeks my glory. And rather than a life of sin, rather than a life that would one day be judged by God and end in death, the kind of life that you're living, I am offering to you life that will not end everlasting life, what John the Apostle calls later, 
Now, where does that kind of life come from? It only comes from God. So what Jesus is offering is life with God to all who would hear and keep his word. In the end, Jesus is saying that we can get forgiveness and freedom from sin and a life with God that will never end if we turn and trust in him by listening and keeping his word. The kind of life that Jesus offers is superior to the kind of life these people had. Frankly, it's superior to the kind of life that we have apart from God. And when you first hear it, it's almost too good to be true. I mean, you think about, you think about being a Jew during, during that time and the kind of things that, that Jesus is offering, the kind of things that he's saying he can make happen. It's frankly not surprising that they would get a little indignant. They would get a little upset. They're thinking, hey, who are you to offer this? How, how can you make these kind of promises? How can you say this is what is right and this is what is wrong and this is what we should be doing? Well, Jesus goes on. He doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us, this is why. This is who I am that I can make these claims. This is who I am that I can make a genuine offer of a life superior to the one you're leaving. This is the second thing that we see, and it's simply this. Jesus is a superior Savior. Jesus is a superior Savior. Now, what makes him superior? Well, he makes some claims about himself that no other person can make. They can make the claims, but they can't, they can't be right. It makes him more than any other person, any other prophet, anyone that has ever called on before. First, Jesus claims to be perfect. Jesus claims to be perfect without sin. How many of you have ever read a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon? Anybody? Anybody there? Have any of you ever read a biography about C.H. Spurgeon? That you, should, you should put that on your wish list. I guarantee, especially the first volume, it will be the most fun you've ever read reading a Christian biography. I mean, the man was, uh, he was a hoot, okay? Because not only was he an amazing expositor, not only did he know God's word well, not only was he a godly man, he also was, frankly, a fun-loving man, okay? And um, there was one time when he was at a train station waiting to go somewhere, and uh, this guy said, uh, yeah, you know, you're Mr. Spurgeon, you're Pastor Spurgeon, aren't you? And he said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I am. Uh, you, you know, you want to talk about something? And he said, yeah. He says, uh, you know, uh, I know you say all the time people can't be perfect. I'm perfect. And of course, I can just imagine this twinkle in Spurgeon's eye, you know. Oh, really? I'm perfect. Uh, no sin, not, you know. And, and, uh, and Spurgeon said, you know, I, I, I doubt that. I don't think so. And he's like, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in typical fashion. Spurgeon gets a little closer and stomps on the man's toe as hard as he can. Well, the guy backs off and he's yelling and cussing and cursing at Spurgeon. And he said, nobody's perfect. And he had his point proved. And likewise for all of us today, I mean, frankly, I take comfort in that fact because it means I don't have such a high standard of attitude. Nobody's perfect, right? We all have faults. I hate going. I just went to the eye doctor just this past, uh, just this past uh, yesterday, actually, this past uh, Saturday. And you know, when you get fitted for glasses, they're supposed to be all nice, and they get the nose pad, and fit, that, that doesn't work for me. They, 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 they do this number, and they do this number, and they do this number, and they're like, man, I can't feel what the problem is. And finally, I tell them, I have one ear that's higher than the other. So we'll say, well, how do you make them fit? So I take the glasses off, and then put them back on, and they fit fine. Okay? Nobody is perfect, not physically, not spiritually, except for Jesus. Jesus says, morally, spiritually, I'm perfect. That's what he says. It's an amazing claim, and frankly, they don't know that they're going along with it. No other person, no other ordinary person can make that claim, but Jesus makes it for himself. They're claiming Jesus, in fact, was a sinner, that he was more than a sinner, that he was demon-possessed. And yet in verse 46, Jesus asked, Would any of you convict me of sin? 
Can any of you lay a charge against me? Can any of you point out to me a sin in my life? I would be scared to death to ask that question in front of a group of people. But Jesus says it. He's making the claim, I am without sin. There's nothing that you can find fault with me. And you, you read the rest of the Gospels. What do you find? Jesus never repents of anything. Never does. Everybody else does. Not him. He never asks forgiveness from God or from any other person. He never says, dude, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I offended you. Will you forgive me? Never does it. Never asks forgiveness. He never acknowledges a weakness of character or a shortcoming of any kind. Moreover, he claims to honor God, to always honor God. So it's not just that he's never done anything wrong. Jesus is saying, I always do everything right as well. Jesus says that he is morally perfect without sin. It's an amazing claim. Just a few minutes before, Jesus said, every person who sins is a slave to sin. Now, everybody sins because the sin comes from the heart. And now he says, as someone who is fully human, I have never sinned. Jesus claims even more for himself, though. It's not just that he is perfect without sin. He's also, he says, glorified by God. Again, the people are in total disbelief at what they're hearing from Jesus. When Jesus offered eternal life, they say to them, What, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? To them, Abraham was the greatest of all God's people. He was the one who was called a friend of God. And Jesus said, those that keep his word, Jesus' word, they would never die. But Abraham had died. If, 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 you're never, if, if following Jesus' words means you're never going to die, that means Jesus is never going to die. And if Jesus never died, that means he must say he's better than Abraham because Abraham did die. He's long been dead. But Jesus goes even further than that. He, he, he doesn't just say he is greater and that he will live longer. Jesus says, I receive glory from my Father, God in heaven. Now you hear that, and the question that comes is, how well do you know your Bible? How well do you know you? Some of you are new in the faith, you don't know it very well. Some of you might have been in church for a long time, you still don't know the Bible very well. But when you hear, when you hear Jesus say that he receives glory from, from the God, that, that God honors him, uh, bells and whistles should go off in your head because he's claiming something here that is phenomenal. You see, when, when God gave the law to Israel, the very first law, the very first command of the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other gods before me. What is God saying? God says, you don't worship anyone. You don't worship anything else but me. I get all the glory. I get all the honor. No one is to get the glory and the honor apart from me. And in case they didn't get that, in fact, part of the sinfulness and not keeping that command later, God would say uh, through the prophet Isaiah, my glory I will not give to another. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. The Lord alone is God, and he will not share his glory with anyone else. Yet what does Jesus say? They accuse him of saying he's greater than Abraham, and Jesus says, I'm not the one who says I'm greater than Abraham. Somebody else says it. Someone else has said that I'm greater than Abraham. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. It is my Father in heaven who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Just in, case, just in case they would somehow mistaken, mistakenly believe Jesus and say, oh, he's talking about Joseph, his earthly father, who loved Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. My father is the one you say is your God. And he gives me glory. Do, do you now feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here? 
If God in the Old Testament has always said, I will not give my glory to anyone else, but Jesus says, God gives me glory. Do you get the weight of what he is claiming? Maybe not. So let's see the third thing that Jesus, the third thing that Jesus claims for himself. He's not just perfectly sinful. He is not just glorified by God the Father, but he is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Maybe the, maybe the other points were a little too subtle. Maybe you say, well, maybe Jesus is claiming something for himself, but, but it's not exactly clear. No problem, because Jesus keeps going. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That is the day of the Lord. That right there is, it, it is a whole sermon on, on explaining that, but we've got to push on. The Jews get upset because they know what Jesus is saying. They push him even harder. And they're asking him, who do you think you are? And what Jesus says is absolutely devastating to them. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What happened? They went from, from almost mocking Jesus to being so mad, so incensed, so frustrated, they became murderous. You see, stoning was a legitimate punishment in that day, but only after a legitimate trial. This is just mob violence that's going on here. The, the, the shock and the outrage is so instantaneous. They're just picking up stones and are getting ready to chuck it and, and kill Jesus for what he has said. What's the big deal? What, what did Jesus say? Again, you've got to know your Old Testament. Jesus himself said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. But what does he mean? It's, it, it's so much more than that. Remember in the Old Testament, God commissions Moses. He, he says, look, my people are enslaved in Egypt and you're going to go free them. You're going to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come and worship me on the mountain. And, and Moses, con Moses confused and he's scared. And he said, well, when I, when I get there, what, what, what God, who shall I say sent me? And in Exodus 3 we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And that, and that expression, I am that I am, or, or sometimes we could translate it, I will be who I will be. It's a, it's a little nebulous exactly what to make of that. But every time in the Old Testament when you see the word Lord, and it's in all capital letters, not capital L with, with lowercase o-r-d, but all capital letters, this is, this is the name that it's showing there. The name of, used to be, we used to call it Jehovah. We know now it's better. It's Yahweh. It's the name of God. So when he says, I am the Lord your God, he's saying, I am Yahweh the, your God. I am that I am. I am. This is what God answers to Moses. And so now in the Jews' question, Jesus didn't just say, I was there. I was there to see Abraham, or I was before Abraham. I'm older than him. Jesus says, I'm not just a really special person. He says, before Abraham ever came into being, I am. I am the eternal God, the sovereign creator of all things, the first and the last, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the redeemer of Israel, the great I am, Yahweh, your God, standing before you in the flesh. And this is what set them over the edge. We can, critics will say, well, that's not what Jesus meant. The Jews knew exactly what he meant. They were not fools. They knew he was claiming to be God. This is why at the very beginning of the book of John, we read, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then later, 
The Apostle John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is more than just a person. He's more than just a good man. He's more than just a great moral teacher or an example for us to follow. He was the second person of the divine Godhood, God the Son, who became flesh for us. It's because He is both fully man and fully God that He can make these promises to us, that He can offer freedom from sin as well as eternal life with God question is then how do we respond how do we respond what do we do with jesus what do we do with what he offers to us jesus is a superior savior who offers us superior life therefore he deserves superior faith he deserves superior faith what do i mean by superior faith Superior to what? Well, in this context, I just mean superior to the people who had just professed faith in Jesus and revealed themselves not to have any faith at all. Their belief was a self-interested faith that crumbled when Jesus taught something they didn't want to hear. Therefore, it's not saving faith. It's not real faith, genuine faith. The kind of belief they exhibited was neither fitting for Jesus, considering who he is, nor was it sufficient to obtain the kind of life he offers. He offers So what is superior faith? What does it look like? What does real faith look like? Well, how will you know when you have truly expressed faith in Jesus Christ? When someone says, I am a disciple of Jesus, what will that look like in their life? Two things. First, you'll love Jesus. You'll love Jesus. Jesus said to the people the very first thing, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus says, if you're truly one of God's children, if you truly are in right relationship with him, adopted as his child, then you would love me. Why would you love Jesus? Well, we've alluded to it before. And John will, will get to it at the end of his gospel where it is made clear while the, the Jesus is teaching foundational things that will lead up to it so we understand it. At the end of the day, we love Jesus because Jesus came. He was sent by God, not just, not just to look around and check things out, but to offer his life as a sacrifice for sins. How, how is it that we get, how is it that Jesus can offer freedom from sin? Because he's paid the ransom with his own life. Isn't that what we just sung? You know, I mean, you, you listen to those Christmas hymns, and I, and I have to ask myself, why don't we sing those things all year round? Why don't we sing them all year round? Not just because we're celebrating Jesus' birth, but because they understand in those hymns what Jesus' coming was all about. Jesus went to the cross willingly to glorify the Father, to offer his life as a propitiation for our sins. That means as a sacrifice that fully satisfied God's wrath for us. So here is one who was perfect. He was fully God and fully man. He was the only one who could both fully identify with sinful people and yet fully remain perfect as a sacrifice that we might be redeemed. And Jesus didn't stay dead, but was raised back to life as the Lord of all things, as he always had been and he forever will be. This is why we should love Jesus, because he first loved us and died for us. More than that, though. If we express real faith in Jesus Christ, then we will also abide in Jesus' words. We will not only love Jesus, we will also, secondly, abide in Jesus' words. The other night I was waiting to meet somebody, and I did a little bit of people watching. It was freezing cold. I was outside, and I had, I had this little book I was going to be reading, and I, I didn't have gloves, and I couldn't even keep the book open. So I literally zipped my coat all the way up like this, stuck 
the book under my armpits, in my hands in my pockets. I just cut it in this number to try and keep warm. And I'm looking around, I'm watching people. You like watching people? I mean, the best place to go is like Walmart and you sit at that little seat they have at the front in the cash registers and you just, you just kind of, you know, you just kind of do this number and you just kind of, you get comfortable, you know, and you kind of do this and you just kind of watch people and you just kind of scan and sometimes you'll find somebody and you'll lock on to them. You're like, yep, it takes all kinds, doesn't it? And you just, you just kind of watch. And this time you kind of, you know, you know I, I kind of people watch. It kind of stuck. There's only a couple people there. And, uh, and so it was very easy to notice everything that was going on. And you got this guy who, uh, you know, um, is, uh, you know, kind of flirting with this girl a little bit and talking about some things. And somebody he knows comes by and he says, hey, hey, I'll be doing this something. And they said, oh, good luck. And he got real indignant. He says, oh, luck. He says, I don't believe in that. As I'm covered with the blood of Jesus. I don't need no luck. I don't believe in that stuff. Well, he didn't say the word stuff. Okay, you know, say, I mean, he, 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 he didn't say the words. He said something a little more picturesque, a little more graphic, a little more, a little more warm and smelly, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, and, and then he began to discuss his favorite alcoholic drinks about the, the vodka and, and raspberry juice that he liked to drink so much that, that sounded, you know, uh, well, anyway. And, and, and he, he went on to, uh, to uh, as some other girls were going by, to, to kind of stop and say, ding, and kind of give them the once over, you know, the whole time, saying, I'm covered in Jesus' blood, I'm covered in Jesus' blood. And then he finally gets to see the friend that he's waiting to see. And it's, hey, man. It's been a foul, filth, blankety blank time since I saw you last. How the foul, filth, stinking blank you been? Oh, come on, you bleepity bleep, so and so, foul, filth, and what are you doing? Yeah, covered in Jesus' blood. And, and, and frankly, I had to needle him a little bit because he'd already said he didn't believe in luck. But, but while we were staying there, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he made a point of wiping something down and saying that he didn't want to catch H1N1. And I looked at him and I said, what are you worried about that for? I thought you were covered in Jesus' blood. He was going to protect you. I said, well, that's true, but man, people still get an H1N1. What are you going to do? Here's the thing. Here's someone that I hope I get to see again. Because here's someone who genuinely thinks they are safe. Here's someone who genuinely thinks they are right with God, covered in Jesus' blood. And according to Jesus' own standard, he is the farthest thing from it. Not because he's still a sinner learning how to be a saint. Fighting the war against sin. No, because he is rejoicing and reveling in sin. And he sees no contradiction between expressing faith in Christ and abiding in Jesus' words. Friends, don't, don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. Don't allow sin to pull the wool over your own eyes. If you are truly one of Jesus' disciples, if you've truly placed faith in him, then you will not only love Jesus because he died for your sins, you will also abide in his words. You will, you will pick up this book and it will be your life. Not because we worship this book, but because this book tells us about Jesus, the one that we love. And because here we have instructions on what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, how we are to honor God with our lives and to give Jesus glory just as Jesus does. Jesus comes not as any other person, as any other man or prophet or teacher. He comes as the living God in the flesh. And he comes ultimately to live a perfect life for us, to die a perfect death, fulfilling God's wrath against our sin for us. And so he says, if you will trust in me, if you will trust that I'm from the Father, if you will trust that I am who I say that I am, and you put your faith in me, and I will give you freedom 
and forgiveness of sins, I will give you the gift of eternal life. In me, you will have joy. This morning, we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, who who are we like? Are we like those people that John could say, many believed, and then as Jesus told them, this is how you live now that you have believed? Don't ever get it wrong. Jesus doesn't say, abide in my words so that you'll have forgiveness. No, he says, have forgiveness, have freedom. And then in response, you abide in my words. But are we those who say we've believed and we haven't? Do we think we're covered in the blood of Jesus, but in reality, we're not? We still stand enslaved to sin with God's wrath hanging above us, ready to fall at the appointed time? Trust in Jesus and believe. If you are a believer, I think many of you are, and I rejoice in that. And let, then let's think again. Let's be reminded again of who Jesus is. About what he did not have to do, but what he chose to do. Not only in honoring his Father, but in loving us. And let's ask ourselves, are we loving Jesus? Are we abiding in his words? Father, we are thankful for this time that even a secular world who doesn't share our faith, gives us to set aside especially to worship the birth of our Savior. But Father, I pray that in worshiping the birth of our Savior, we will not forget the the implications of what it means for Jesus to be our Savior. We will not forget the implications of, of what it means to say we put our faith in Him. And now, Father, those are not meaningless words, but a powerful declaration of where our allegiance and our love will forever lie. Father, I pray, God, that that will be true of us, that it will be true that we will love your Son, Jesus Christ, that we will seek to abide in his words. Father, I pray that it will be so evident and obvious that it will be an encouragement and a building up of your kingdom, your people, the church, and that, Father, it will open doors for people that are not yet your people, that they may see the authenticity, the the depth of our faith and our love for Christ, and so it would be attractive to them. They would see that there is something different about us and it would give us an opportunity to share the gospel that they too might believe. Father, I pray that you would continue to work the word in our hearts. Father, you would cause us to dwell deep in the word that you might be honored and that we might be transformed, that we might know joy in Christ. Father, we pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.